Grow stories, life lessons, turning points, service to others, truth, no bullshit, adding value, no smoke and mirrors, being the pressure, third down and 10, win or learn, always the underdog with a chip on your shoulder. These are the things that I think about when I talk to this group. From service academy fleet leaders, NFL players, NASCAR drivers, tech gurus, private equity, small business, big business, to the entrepreneurs making the way of the future. Winning at all costs with uncompromised integrity, paying the price of admission. Let's go. Doug Martin today, also known as BFB, big freaking dude. Uh... USNA of 2000. That's weird to say 2000. It's always like 01, 02, 99, but 2000 is definitely a, a unique year, right? The uh, whole last of the century, baby. Yeah, when everyone was freaking out about if the computers were going to crash or not. Y2K. Uh, there you go. Maybe football, um, uh, you know, 96 to 99 long snapper. Uh, also played some rugby. Raised in Kansas City and went to an all-male Jesuit uh, high school of Rockhurst. Involved in football and rugby there. Became uh, an NFO, a flight officer. Uh, Did some TAD time, so did some GA time um, with the Navy football program post-graduation. Now the president of two different companies, Transpar Group and Mercury Associates residing in uh, Charlestown um, area today, transitioned uh, from the NFO program uh, into those things. Hobbies are golf, working out, snowboarding, uh, traveling, and uh, hanging out with the family, cooking. Um, That's the intro. Getting into some memories. So my favorite part is first one, Bing Gabbard. I think he, I think he was a senior when I was a freshman, maybe. Um, he was oh eight, eight, I think. Right. So yeah. Oh eight grad. I think. So I think he was a sophomore. Yeah, yeah. senior year or sophomore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he said, "Doug Martin taught my aviator practicum class." He may not remember this, <laughs> but I tell a story a time or two and describe the type of student that I was, I'm guessing like to his folks, um, that we had to turn in a five or six pager for a paper. And he typed three pages. And then he copied and pasted those three pages, uh, you know, one to two, it turned out to be a six pager and turned it in like it was slapped in the face emoji for him. Uh, he said, you called him into the room and, and let, let them know that that whole Navy football thing is supposed to work. You got to pull your weight and do the work. He still helped me through it. Um, he was able to make it through that class. So this is the story that I, I actually mentioned to you and, uh, it was so funny. So that class, I miss the easiest class you take. There's no class easier in the world. And you had the assignment was write five to seven pages about anything related to naval aviation that you want to talk about. That's it. That's the whole assignment. 
it just, and then I said, just follow these instructions. And so I get it. And they asked if they could include pictures. I said, yes, you can include pictures, but pictures can't take up more than a half a page. As many pictures as you want, but no more than half a page. So he turns his in. <laughs> it's got two pictures. Each picture is the exact same picture. Each picture is half a page <laughs> in and of itself. And it's barely five and a half pages long with these two entire pages fully copied and pasted. And so I write like 70% on it and circle it, put it down in front of him, you know, loose all those big, huge chart tables. And he's sitting there next to his partner. He's, and he looks at me like, what the? And I just said, come see me afterwards. He starts flipping through. And then that's when he literally did the hand to the face emoji in class and was like, I'm the biggest idiot on the planet. So, yeah, he ended up getting like an 85 or something because I gave him 100% after that and I could only give him half of what he missed back or something. So, gotcha. Yeah, if he, if he had a chat GPT nowadays, <laughs> he could probably, uh, he'd been done in 36 seconds. Exactly. Right. That's crazy. That's a crazy uh, technology for sure. Yes, it is. All right. Next one. Tim Shubda. Um, Shuby. You know, Tim Long, or you Long Snapper, Tim Kicker. Um, he said you were the model of consistency when it came um, to game time, getting on the field. Um, he said, if I missed a kick, it wasn't because of Doug. Um, it was easy for Tim. And he, he also like spit out some stats on like all the kicks that he had and some of the ones that he missed, but it was never, that was never a variable. Um, it was easy for Tim, um, to take out that snapping variable issue that could happen because of that, um, tight relationship y'all had you, Tim and Trey, I'm guessing Trey, Trey was a holder. He was our punter. Trey caught every snap I ever snapped in a varsity game. Gotcha. That um, you both stayed close through flight school after the fact. Spent plenty of study hours together prepping for the quals. Uh, good story. So, last one, Terrence Anderson. He was also he was a, a linebacker by trade when he came into the program, but he he ended up being the center. And also ended up being the team captain. So that's pretty cool. I'm guessing that's when Navy went from, you know, pro style to ground game, maybe. Or like so, so all four years for us were uh were the triple. And um Okay. But Terrence so Terrence his dad coached in Oklahoma and Terrence knew Doc Fair when he got to nice. the Academy. I got, Derek, I got Doc Fair coming up too. Terrence had both Barry Sanders and Thurman Thomas as babysitters at different points when he was growing up. And Terrence was a 5'10", 295-pound center that did not allow a sack his senior year. He and Dave Rhino, our, our nose guard, uh, were both so strong and their both of their backs were so jacked up that they weren't allowed to squat. Uh, Coach Folk wouldn't allow them to squat our senior year, and they would so they would do leg press, and we would load the leg presses up 
and then they would take turns sitting on top of the leg press after it was loaded with plates and then they would press that hmm. terrence majored in economics minored in japanese and then took the mcats and got one of the 15 slots to be a doctor now he's an orthopedic surgeon uh pediatric and hip specialty orthopedic surgeon um and he was also a battalion commander second set gotcha terrence terrence set a a level of excellence uh that every person in that in that brigade aspired to he was just nice he was incredible really cool well this is what he had to say about you um i Doug brought is, him down a notch <laughs> <laughs> uh, he didn't say that but um yeah he said doug is a, a fantastic human doug's always there in the best way possible um those in the brotherhood likely are fortunate uh, to have several people in our lives that are always ready and willing uh, to walk through the good and the bad without hesitation. Doug was one of those guys um, for seeming seemingly like everybody. He doesn't waver. Also, Doug consistently sees people in situations for better than they are. Um, this optimism and expectation makes me a better person when I'm confronted with it. So that's amazing. That's pretty cool. Very humbling. Awesome. All right. Story time. Turn it over to you. So, so two quick corrections from your intro, just real quick. I didn't get to GA. So uh, Dave Rhino was the defensive GA. And I think Pat Singleton was the offensive GA. They both became P3 pilots. Um, on down the line, but they were the two GAs. Uh, so I was just TAD waiting on flight school for oh, okay. four or five gotcha. months. But, um, uh, and, uh, unfortunately I wish big freaking dude was what it was attributed to, but instead it was actually big fat Doug. And so, uh, <laughs> I had my, my two roommates in VP 30, when I was going through VP 30, which is the rag for the, for the P three back in the day in Jacksonville and, I live with two other dudes. One was a swimmer at the academy. The other one, I don't even know where Beachy went or B. Lee went. I think he went to Bowling Green or something. He went somewhere up in Kentucky. He was from Franklin. Okay. Uh, That's where I'm living. So, yeah, up, up in there. And uh, so his name was Brian Lee. Our other roommate was Brian, Gra Brian Glazer. And uh, they went by B. Lee and BG. And so this is back in 2001 when we still had phone lines, hard line phone lines and answering machines, which I know a lot of our listeners don't even know what those two things mean. But I come home one day and he's like, hey, you need to listen to the you need to listen to the messages. So I go over and press the button. and You have no messages. He's like, no, you got to listen to the our, to our message to the message. I said, okay. So I press it and it's like, hey, you've reached B Lee, BG, and BFD, leave a message. And I go, <laughs> I just look at him, I go, who the hell's BFD? He's like, you are big fat Doug. And that was it. That was gotcha. that was the end of Paul Sign search for for me. But uh yeah, man, I grew up uh 
oldest of three kids, uh, two younger sisters. We're all very close in age, you know, less than two years apart. Um, and my my dad was a uh, was also an NFO. He was a Top Gun instructor and a Rio and all that stuff. F four Phantom. 1974 grad of the academy he won more championships than i did but his were in brigade intramural football not in uh big boy football he was uh not blessed with the size that that i was able to eventually attain uh he was just he was skinny as a rail but uh i knew at a very young age what i wanted to do uh to just model myself after him uh, he never talked about anything really unless he was talking to some friends that were asking him questions and then I'd eavesdrop uh, or I'd have to pick it, pick it out of him. I think he was very conscious about pressing me towards something that he didn't feel like anyone should be pressed towards, which was appreciative of me. But I got very lucky. We, uh, we grew up in a, in a phenomenal city and in a phenomenal uh, area of Kansas City. Uh, Overland Park in Leewood, Kansas, which is very affluent. And going through middle school, uh, I had classmates that would talk about suing the teacher if they yelled at them again and that sort of thing. And I just couldn't, and I couldn't stand it. So uh, I was lucky enough. I went and did a visit one day at this private Jesuit Catholic high school. We, our family wasn't Catholic or anything. Uh, but I went and did a visit one day, and it was the single greatest day of school I'd ever experienced. I was like, yeah, Taco Bell for lunch. It's just dudes running around. It's like uh, it's like being in the Navy football locker room. That's what the whole day of school was like on this day. And I said, I don't know what it takes to go there, Dad, but that's that's my home. That's where I want to go. And up till then, you know, I played like one year of competitive football back in like fourth grade. Otherwise... Uh, football wasn't really my thing. And uh, so he got a hold of a high school classmate of his that was actually teaching and coaching football there and talked to him about it, gave me the green light. I got to go. And so he sent me to every sports camp school hosted that summer before my freshman year of high school. And when I went to football camp, I listened to this head coach. His name's Tony Severino. Who, yep. He was actually the 2005 USA Today High School Football Coach of the Year for the nation. And uh, if that would have been badminton camp, you know, I'd, I'd have played badminton for four years. But it was football, and so I told my mom, hey, I got to go by. It's funny how a good coach will. Uh, he, he, changed, he, he changed the entire trajectory of my life. Um, I fell in love with football. He told me, he, he told uh, the, everyone that was at this camp, the fastest way to get on the field is to learn how to, to long snap. Uh, there was one kid in that camp that knew how to long snap. His name was Johan Brownlee. I'll never forget his name. He didn't even graduate with us. But I owe that kid everything. He taught me how to long snap during that camp while I was playing quarterback for our camp team. And long snapping for me was easy. It was just, I threw the ball upside down and backwards instead of standing up. But, you know, that was it. And uh, that really changed the whole trajectory. My sophomore year in high school, um, 
they made an announcement that if you know you were ready to meet with the college counselor, go down and see him. I went down and saw him the next day, and uh, I said I want to go to the Naval Academy. He pulled up my grades, started talking to me about how I needed to change my expectations, and uh, I never talked to that guy again. So after that, my mom became my college counselor, and uh, she made sure that I didn't get in trouble for not ever doing anything that that guy wanted me to do. I only applied to one school, and uh, funny, I applied to one school and one program. I applied to, to Navy ROTC, and my, my deal with my parents was if I don't get into the Naval Academy before New Year's, then I'll fill I'll write all the essays for the rest of the colleges I was going to apply to. And uh, I got a letter from Navy ROTC that says, sorry, but you've been denied at this time. And that happened in like October, November. I was like, if I can't get into ROTC, how, how the hell am I going to get into the academy? And then uh, Christmas break, I got a letter of acceptance to the Naval Academy. Nice. And and so that, that changed it all. I got to sign a letter of intent and all that stuff in February. Uh, Coach Sev had three kids, three boys. I played with their with his middle son, Jeff Severino, to this day one of the greatest athletes, natural athletes I've ever I've ever been able to play with. He went to Air Force, left after two years, didn't sign his two for seven. Uh, but he went to Air Force, picked off. Brian Broadwater in a JV game. Uh, shout out to 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 B Water, but uh, uh, when when we were playing against their JV team, uh, actually covering Ryan Reed, who was one of the best receivers we played with, he, but he transferred to Boston College. Uh, and then my best friend went on to play at Boston College. Uh, and then we had two guys that went to play at Missouri State. Another guy went and played at Rollin. Another guy went and played at K State. So we had seven. Seven guys, six guys signed D1 or one AA letters of intent, and then one guy signed a D2 or three, whatever Rolla was, letter of intent. And I backed up two of those guys. I backed up the center on offense, and I backed up my best friend at D tackle on defense. Um, and I just long snapped. You know, kind of like Joe said in his in his podcast, right? I mean, I was a pretty mediocre football player. But I could just throw the ball upside down and backwards really fucking well. That, yeah. I mean, yeah. that niche that, uh, yeah. is important, I think. So I get to the academy, and uh, even though my dad went to the academy, uh, Plebe Summer was still a punch in the face. I lost 33 pounds over Plebe Summer, came in at 231, dropped to 198. Uh but playing in JV games as a plebe. So I, I got to travel my whole plebe year and uh, play, then playing JV games. So I got the best of both worlds, especially since we went 9-3 and three and won the Aloha Bowl and all that kind of stuff. I, I saw all of that. And the class of 97, you guys have said it a few times. Uh, I know Matt Nichak is, uh, or both Nichak and uh, especially Cam have, have talked about that being sort of the godfather class and for modern navy football it really is i mean that was they got two years with paul johnson i only got one um but paul johnson is the reason that navy football turned around 
he left. No doubt. We yep. started to we started to dip. Uh, we got a new athletic director in Chet Gladchuk, who replaced. Um, I can't believe I'm brain farting on this, but the coach at Marshall that they made a movie about. Uh, that was our former. Not obviously Matthew McConaughey who played yeah, him, but the Naval Academy is a training but, ground for coaches to go somewhere but, else. No, no, but he wasn't a coach. He was our athletic director <laughs> at or, the time. Yeah, no, and and so concept. Yeah, right. But he, I mean, no, he retired, and uh, I'll think of his name at some random point during all this. But he retired, and Chet Gladshaw came in, and the first thing Chet did, at least the story I've always heard, I don't think I've confirmed this, but he called Ben. Faye, he called Clint Bruce, you know, he called the the leaders of that of that team and that class and said, you know, what happened and why have we fallen so far so fast? And what was what do you attribute our success to from you know, you guys going nine and three and winning the Aloha Bowl? And the next thing you know, we hire Paul Johnson. Makes sense. And uh it made all the sense in the world. And what do you remember about him? From when uh, he came into the program. So, like I said, so his first year was my senior year in high school. I did not go to Naps, so my plebe year was his second year. And being a sole special teamer, you know, I, I never went through fourth quarters with PJ because he, he was just there for the first semester, and then he was off to Georgia Southern. Uh, but what I remember from him and from the coaches that were there with him in the beginning was the switch, right? I mean, those guys loved you. They cared about you. They would do anything for you other than for the two hours during which you're between the lines. And at that time, it's not about you. Ever. Right. It's so about you, it's about this team and it's about preparing this team to win on Saturday or Thursday, whenever your game is. And so it was all business all the time. Don't take it personal and I'm gonna rip every single thing you do to shreds because my expectation, the minimum, the minimum standard is higher than you could ever imagine without me as your coach. That that was what they did, and I think I think the type of person that goes to the Naval Academy <laughs> responds to that in a very different way than the average human being. Gotcha. And if you don't respond in a good way, you leave, yep. and everybody's better up, for that. Up or out, right? Up or out. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, so, I had a I had a roller coaster career there. Uh, like I said, I got to travel and back up a great guy. I mean, phenomenal human being. You talked to the class of '97 about the quality of human being of Lester Fortney, and uh, I, I, it'd be hard to argue there's a better person on the team than Lester Fortney. So he was Beef Dreschler's backup at center, but then he also was the starting long snapper. 
He's from a small town in North Carolina. I think he actually lives back in North Carolina now. I may have seen him twice in my entire life where he didn't have a smile on his face. And just consummate Christian Southerner. You know, just, just a great, great man. And uh, so that was my, he was my, you know, that's who I was trying to become uh, as the starter. And uh, I can't remember if it was my, senior year in high school or my freshman year at the academy one of those two years is when they made the rule that you're no longer allowed to tee off on the long snapper and before that i you know, I had spent my whole high school career just getting rolled up I mean, <laughs> and so i was constantly trying to get bigger and stronger to prevent that but i when i snapped i looked i looked the whole time and i walked in to two a day is my sophomore year and Tommy Ray who you know Brad Chatlos and a lot of other linebackers have talked about one another just phenomenal human being he was our linebackers coach and uh he was the punt team coach he's like hey Doug we're gonna we're gonna give you a blocking assignment this year and I'm coming into the season projected to be the starter as a sophomore and I I said what do you mean coach now, this is like the day or the day before two days start. Yeah, we're gonna have you go ahead and block somebody this year. You they can't hit you anymore, so we're just gonna go ahead and have you block somebody this year. That won't be a problem, will it? I suppose. Yep. We'll find out. And Sounds I it's like I, uh, lean manufacturing. Yeah. So I so <laughs> I learned I learned real quick you can't have your head between your legs and block anybody because they're moving around, they're doing stuff. And it took me that entire season I to figure it out. And then some. I mean, I ended up in a JV game. So I did not start. Dave Vidger, class of 98, who played D-tackle and eventually uh, went on to the league, play offensive guard. Awesome. Could probably could probably still be in Miami the league. Dolphins. Jets and the Dolphins. Jets and the Dolphins. I think I've With seen def- that guy. And, definitely yeah. the Jets. Um, you know, in one of your episodes, uh, somebody told you you had to watch the program. Yep. Uh, I did. He's real life Latimer in terms of physical stature. He was a physical specimen. Starting D tackle, absolute chiseled specimen. Two hundred and ninety, whatever he was, pounds of just block of muscle. And uh D- Dave had the ability to long snap. Like literally, wake up, get out of bed, and throw a strike for the NFL. I mean, it was it just was very simple, easy, and natural for him, or at least that's the way he made it seem. And they didn't even travel a backup that year. It wouldn't have mattered if they did. I fell so far down the depth chart, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, at one point in a JV game, I snapped a ball over the punter's head. The only time in an actual game I've ever done that before. Uh, that was in a JV game, and then I didn't even start the rest of the season on the JV team. I got passed up for that. Hmm. No, I, uh, I definitely I played a, my fair share of uh, JV games. So. I, had, I had a hard time figuring that whole thing out. So I eventually figured it out and then started my junior and senior year. I missed my start for, my, for the Wake Forest. I think it was the Thursday night ESPN game of the week, opening of our that was a, that was Chad Lowe's senior season, so the '98 season, because I got suspended from the team for 
doing stupid stuff over the summer. And uh, so that whole year was just a, that was, that was tough. That was a, a, a lot of tough stuff. Yeah. With any learnings <laughs> out of that summer tuition that you had to pay? I mean, I've definitely paid the tuition one summer. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, I got in trouble. Well, the trouble happened during cruise, but, yep. but I didn't have to fess up to it until reform. And so I paid, I paid the, the Piper, uh, from like September through Thanksgiving and the depth on rung me up like just below threshold to where I wouldn't get my black in. Um, I had all the pain required of a black in, but not enough data for a black in. So, you know, that was kind of disappointing. That same depth on eventually got fired for, uh, for a very similar incident to the one that I got in trouble for. So I think there's, yeah, exactly. I think there was some, uh, I think there was some, some mutual understanding in there somewhere, but he was a good guy. I I can't complain. And, uh, our O rep at the time, Corky Gardner, uh, helicopter pilot, uh, flew an HM one, just like, uh, horn, um, did and all that stuff. HMX one, uh, was just phenomenal and made sure that I got through it with the least amount of pain possible. But that, that hurt not starting in that game and having to stand up and tell the team that what I had done over the summer was going to cost us that, uh, that, that sucked. And that, and it straightened me out, uh, not so much the event, but having to stand up in front of the team and tell them all that, uh, because most of them had no idea. Um, so my very last day of restriction was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving break. I was on loss of leave, so that didn't matter. But at least I wasn't going to have to stand inspection on, or you know, restriction inspection on Thanksgiving Day. And we had a. 4 a.m. or whatever the crazy thing was. I don't know if you guys ever did this. Buster. But the no, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving break, we would practice, have a full-fledged practice gotcha. before class. We'd show up at like four or four thirty in the morning. Yeah. And I nearly I nearly forgot about my last inspection. So I should I I'm sprinting to the rotunda to get to my last inspection and SDBs. I show up and the absolute worst possible company officer in the brigade. This guy hated me. He was, I don't remember what he was in the Marine Corps. He was a, a captain in the Marine Corps, but I don't remember what his MOS was. Captain Fiaco. And he hated me. Absolutely hated me. Why do you think? And, you? Uh, he was not a big fan of football players in general. But he had, I don't know, I, to this day, I, I kind of take it as a badge of honor. He he was the, the third company company officer, and I was in second company. I really don't even know how well or how he knew me, but he had figured it out. Yeah, well, you got this done, guy. Doing something right, then. Dude, this guy did not like me. Did not like me. 
I pushed a lot of limits. Uh, but anyway, we're going through inspecting everybody and a member of his company is in the restriction muster and he's not on restriction. And that was a guy named uh, Murph McCarthy. Murph was our class president, prior enlisted Marine, went to Naps, played football, yeah. cracked his helmet against a guy named Mike Wall. Sounds like uh, Justin uh, North. I mean, yes, exactly. <laughs> and then he went and played rugby. And now he's Just a, like Justin North. I think North did too. Right, exactly. And I coached Justin awesome. when I was back at the academy. So I know Justin well. Love that kid. Uh, and then Murph is now the women's rugby coach at, at Navy and has won one or two national championships. Awesome. But Murph is, uh, so I, I'm like, dude, and he's just sitting there and he's the biggest clown you've ever met. So he's smirking and laughing. And I go to the next guy. Now Fiaco is in front of Murph and he's like, Mr. McCarthy, what are you doing here? Sir, I'm here in honor of Midshipman Martin's final restriction muster. <laughs> Who said it was this final restriction muster? Sir, oh. I have faith in I have I have faith in you and Midshipman Martin. This will be his final restriction. Okay. Yeah, we'll see about that. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, Murph, I've been on this for 46 days. Like, what are you? You're killing me here, man. But but we got through it. And then he and a guy named Pete P. Moeller, another. Uh, footballer who is a uh, brother a guy he's uh class of 2001 you know dragged me all around the christmas tree and everything else and ruined my uniform and that was that was my last day of restriction so gotcha. but anyway uh we had a pretty uneventful <clears throat> rest of that year we went three and eight and then our senior year got off to a just a terrible start we hosted georgia tech got our asses kicked by Georgia Tech. And I remember being uh, probably the most angry I've ever been in my life after that game. Is that when Paul Johnson was back there? No. he, he no. This was long okay. before he was back. Um, and, I mean, this is when we were pulling out all the stops, right? We were trying to salvage everything, added a tight end, you know, we did it. We were doing everything we can to try to rebuild the team. So many of the assistants had left at that point. Had a ton of new assistant coaches, you know, um, and we just got waxed at home by Georgia Tech. And we had a players-only meeting that next week. And I, I don't remember everything about what I said, but. I know I said something to the tune of, look, I know I'm only a deep snapper and I have absolutely no leg to stand on here. <laughs> I definitely started with that, you know, but if this isn't your, Lead with but, humility, if, right? but if this place isn't your priority, get out. If, if academics are your priority, if the whole is your priority, if like those things all come second to here, because this is what we blood and sweat for this right here we do those things so that we can be here and if it's not your priority and get out and a lot of guys terrence dave you know a lot of guys got up and, and talked during during that piece jamie dolfmeyer jamie was our defensive team captain another just 
salt of the earth human being. He was a dual sport guy too. He played he played lacrosse our sophomore and our senior year. A lot of opponents on the lacrosse field didn't didn't make it out of their stadium with their team because of Jamie Dolphmeyer. He played free safety and just destroyed people on the on the lacrosse field. Yeah, I got As a lot of respect for lacrosse. Oh, that's what what, what an amazing sport. What an yeah. amazing sport. And uh but we ended up losing the rest of our games that we lost that year by seven points or less. And I think I mentioned to you the, the Notre Dame game, which if you haven't gotten a chance to go back and watch that, you, yeah, unbelievable. I mean, it's just it's not a first down. You know, you 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 give us a challenge flag and we break the streak before you guys were fortunate enough to break the streak. And when you guys broke the streak, we had just played a game, a rugby match against Coostown, Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and uh, you remember uh, Craig Almond? Do you remember a okay. guy named Craig Almond? Yep. So Craig, Craig's brotherhood guy played football for a couple of years, blew out his knee, couldn't get back on the field, switched to rugby. And uh, he's now a P3 NFO. He's still in. And I remember we were in some dirty bar on the side of the road pulled the entire bus over to go in and watch you guys finish the job against Notre Dame in 2007 and uh, Craig and I were just hugging each other for like 10 minutes I mean it was just you know something that you just didn't understand unless you had been there before to really understand it and that was that was just amazing that was awesome yeah, so good, good memory con- for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Congrats on that. Uh, and you got to do it twice. I think I saw both of them. Awesome. And I, and I got to see us beat them in Jacksonville. You know, two thousand was that fifteen or sixteen? So uh, I think I saw us beat them up in New York too. Yeah, I think I've seen us beat them. Well, in person, I think I've seen us beat them two or three times, but just. That'll never get old, especially when almost ten percent of my graduating class went to Notre Dame. Yeah, no, so. big big story of the or big lover of the underdog story personally, and I always look for that. And, you know, that's what gives me energy. So, so anyways, we'll be labored on the academy. I'll, I'll try to get through the rest of this. The other big part of the academy for me was after my plebe year, they sent us all to new companies. Uh, and the company I ended up in, I as a as a youngster, as a sophomore, I was the oldest football player in the company. That sucked. Yeah, uh, you don't have some of that top cover. Yeah, well, and I had no roommates, right? Uh, it was I, I I didn't know anybody. I had no idea, and so I got to know the brigade real real quick. <laughs> Uh, in my company and found some of the greatest people, you know, you'll ever meet, uh, Drew Jones, BA Jones, uh, was my roommate for three years, uh, godfather of my daughter, uh, Kyle Shoup ended up being my roommate for a year and a half or two years. I think it was a year and a half. Uh, my last year and a half there ended up being best player on our rugby squad, which was loaded with phenomenal talent and you know had 
had a few other guys come and go, Dan Crowley and uh, and Josh Powers, uh, at, you know, at the end, and just such great dudes, and um, and that I think prepared me better for the transition to the fleet uh, than anything because I got to the fleet and I'm in flight school and I knew one guy in my flight school class cause he was my roommate. He was long pole, all American lacrosse player named Chad Donnelly. And I'm like, Chad, how do we get screwed with all the OCS and like ROTC guys? Like, you know, who are all these dudes? And he's like, he's like, you're such an idiot. Everybody in here went to the Academy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God. So I, I knew no one. I just didn't know anybody. And you've heard, you know, Jordan and Nick Henderson and t- a couple other guys talk about it. You know, most of us don't go fly. Uh, most, most of the football guys don't go fly. So it, it makes you realize really quick just how small of a group of people you knew at the academy because your time was so consumed with something else. And then yeah. your social time. That's who you went and spent your time with. So you get to know a whole different group of people really quick. I was really fortunate. I, I wanted to go P3s. I got to go P3s. Uh, P3 is, as you may or may not have heard, but P3 stands for per diem, per diem, per diem. And uh, <laughs> that's that's no joke. You know, $115 a day, tax-free in Bahrain. While your buddies are flying off the boat, uh, it makes no sense, but I'll, I'll take it all day, every day. And, uh, you know, I got P3s. I went through flight school. I wanted, all I wanted to do was deploy to Europe. You know, prior to 9-11, that was my only concern. And uh, so I put in all my requests and all that kind of stuff. Turns out I didn't get anything. In fact, I was so far from getting anything that I requested. They pulled me and that guy B. Lee in and said, hey, neither of you have your top four available. So we have two options available. You two figure out which one you want. And so one was a Hawaii slot. One was a Whibby Island slot. And I just looked at B. Lee and said, hey, man, you pick. I don't don't care. You take whichever one you want. And he's like, really? I said, Honestly, yeah, I don't it's, care. It's funny how that works. Like when you want it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> when you don't want it, it happens. Yeah, you know, and I've listened to your MOS story a lot, right? And uh, and so I ended up going to Whidbey Island. Single greatest thing that could ever happen to me. I was in the best squadron at Jam the what? best at the best time. I deployed to uh, the Middle East in December of two thousand two. We invaded Iraq March 2003. Uh, the night that we invaded Iraq, I was overland Iraq with special people on board wanting to talk to their special people on the ground. And I had a front row seat to the march to Baghdad. I saw it every other day. I was flying deeper and deeper into combat. That first night, we got lit up like a Christmas tree. They were shooting missiles and everything at us. Uh, shocked a lot of people into reality really fast. I was still too young and naive and cocky to to be shocked into reality. I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Um, it, it was just an absolutely amazing deployment. And then we went back from that, 
and uh, had a change of command. And that new CO, who was our XO, and he was actually on that flight with me when we got shot at Fast Eddie Campbell. And then the next XO, who became our next CO, uh, Scott Mav Coolidge, were two just pivotal mentors in my life. Um, taught me everything I needed to know about the Navy on a big scale at that point. Uh, and my, you know, Monty Willie was my, my, uh, he was, he was the first warrant officer to be allowed to become a naval flight officer in the P3 community. And that, yeah, and he, and he was, are awesome. yeah, he was a door gunner in desert storm as a rescue swimmer flying Hueys. And now he's teaching me how to be a P3 NFO, right? So I, I get the whole, you know, there's no such thing as luck. It's, you know, preparation and opportunity coming together. No, I didn't want to go to Whidbey Island. The Navy sent me to Whidbey Island. I had no clue what squadron I was going to get. That's who I got sat with. Now, I, I could have been unprepared and an idiot to take advantage of it. Yes, but I was lucky that they were there to give me an opportunity to take advantage of a situation. And uh, so that was just amazing. Had the if 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 I could have extended in that tour, I'd still be there. I'd have never left. I would have just left every twelve months, gone on deployment, fought wars, kicked ass, flown that plane till I died. It was absolutely unbelievable. We were doing great stuff. Our second deployment, we went to the Pacific and I got to, to find and track out of area deployers from big bad countries and lead debt detachments, you know, to other countries, Thailand, South Korea, uh, Singapore, we went all over the place. It was more, more responsibility than any, that, than any 25 year old should ever be, <laughs> you know, granted. Uh, and it was awesome. And then, uh, after that, I wanted to be an admiral's aide because Why? I figured, I figured I had two shots at seeing it from an admiral's perspective. Okay. Either being a, being a to be an admiral, and uh, I figured I'd screw up way too bad before I could ever become an admiral, and I had the paperwork True. to become an aide, and it was tough. Um, the first guy I went and interviewed with is actually a classmate of mine's dad, and I didn't know my classmate that that classmate very well at all. But I went out and interviewed with him. He was a nuke, some submariner. And uh, I had talked to a buddy of my dad's right before I went out there, and he said, hey, and he was an admiral. And uh, one of my best friends from my squadron was his aide at the time. I helped him get that job, and he said, listen, you're interviewing him as much as he's interviewing you. If it's not a fit, yeah. don't take the job. 100%. So went out, and to, flew to Hawaii, interviewed with him, and I just started praying that he wouldn't offer me the job. Because we had absolutely nothing in common. I mean, this guy and I were black and white, oil and water. It was never going to work. Uh, and as luck would have it, you know, he calls me on my cell phone. I'm at Duke's down in Waikiki. Uh, so I'm literally sprinting to find a quiet place so he do knows, doesn't know that I'm in a bar <laughs> taking this phone call. <laughs> and uh, he's like, hey, Doug, I just wanted to let you know I've decided to go in a different direction. I said, Admiral, you've made the right choice. Click, 
start the process over. Next guy I interviewed with was going to be uh, Chief Naval Forces of Japan. And we had a two-hour interview over the phone in which he all but said I was his guy, but that he had one interview left that he had to take because it was already set up. I don't hear from this guy for weeks. All I know is I don't get the job, and I'm back in the pipeline working again. I get a phone call like 5 o'clock in the morning one day, and it was him. And he said, hey, sorry it's been so long. I just wanted to let you know you're all set. You're going you're gonna to interview soon. You're going to get this job, and uh, you're going to be fine. But the guy that I interviewed after you uh, grew up. Uh, as the son of the command master chief of <laughs> yeah, politics there. Uh, of, no, of Yakuska and he's fluent in Japanese. And I, he's, he's like, he's like, I didn't miss that right in your resume. You're not fluent in Japanese. I was like, Admiral Konnichiwa. That's about all I got. So, you know, after that, I, I, I don't have any Japanese. I said, I'm sure you made the right choice, but uh, I don't know what to, to tell you because I've got an interview set up and I hope this doesn't conflict with what you're you're working on. He said, "Well, who who are you going in and view?" I said, uh, "Commander Carrier Striker Bait, uh, Al Myers." He said, "You're all set. Don't worry about it." So I went out, interviewed with uh, Matt Al Myers, and the rest of that was history. And I learned everything I needed to know about being a professional in life, in business, in the Navy everything the man was just a relentless professional no detail we would spend we spend hour hour and a half sometimes writing a four sentence email together and then we go up on the flag bridge and smoke cigar i mean the guy was just incredible he was an air force academy grad that immediately went to the navy his dad had been a colonel in the Air Force. He wanted a different path. He was an F-4 Rio, so had a similar background to my dad. We we understood the whole NFO thing. He worked out like a champ, so that was easy, you know. Uh, and I I got him. He got me. It was we just got really lucky, and uh, that was incredible. And so he had three chiefs of staff during his time, which is very unusual. The first one was a carryover from his predecessor. That's normal. But then you get one, you keep them. But for him, he got one, and that guy went on to be a Hilo Squadron Commodore. So he left. And then the third, no, I'm sorry. That was that was the third one that he had was the Hilo Squadron Commodore. And the second one he got... Um, was Peg Klein, and she what ended up about? becoming yeah. She ended up becoming the Mamadon, right? So I got to meet her and know her, and uh, eventually got to know her husband, who was a P three skipper, uh, Frank, and a physics instructor back at the academy during your time. I don't know if you ever got to meet Frank, but Skipper Frank probably. Skipper Frank is. There, you know, another level. I mean, the guy was just absolutely amazing. And actually, I'm pretty sure Peg Klein 
was Ben Faye's CO when Ben flew E6s. Nice. Uh, but what a phenomenal lady. I called her and I said, hey, I want to go to the academy. She's like, okay. Come be a company officer. And I started having all these flashbacks of all the battalion officers that I had as a midshipman. I want nothing to do with that as a boss. I said, I'll be a company officer if I can report directly to you. She's like, I can't do that. I said, great, then find me a different job. <laughs> so she got me a job at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership working for Art Athens, who is probably the single greatest human being I've ever met in my life. Awesome. And uh, if you never got a chance to know Art Athens, father of 10. Mm, uh, like yeah. Homeschooled. Almost all of them. At least until high school. Then they gave him a choice. He was a brigade commander and captain of the lacrosse team. Um, class of 78. He served as the CEO of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He served as or officers of Christian Fellowship, but I can't remember which one. Uh, he was the Commandant of the Merchant Marine Academy. He did 15 years active duty and 15 years reserves in the Marine Corps. Uh, at one point, he had two sons in high school, and their high school coach quit the first week of the season uh, of lacrosse season. So he volunteered to coach the team, and they won the state championship. Nice. I mean... Everything he touched was gold. I mean, the guy was just unbelievable, and he set me up to where I am today. So he taught me how to be a consultant before I ever became a consultant, showed me the path of how my personality worked as a consultant before I knew what being a consultant meant. Even though my dad was had owned and ran a consulting firm, I, I still didn't really truly understand it. He knew me so much better than I knew myself in a professional manner and he saw it so well and could explain it so well. Um, I mean, I just, I owe him a tremendous amount and then got to work with a lot of other great people there. Uh, Dan Healy and, and other guys that I still keep in touch with, but it was just awesome. So, and, oh, and, and I should have warned you. So I've listened to every single one of your podcasts. Nice. 100% of them, except Cliff, because I don't think Cliff's been posted yet. I just put it out. Oh, good. So I'll listen to it soon. But um, Hunter Jones, unique thing. So I'm going to do everything I can to be a little shorter than Hunter. However, I could easily go longer than Hunter. No problem. But Hunter Jones, class of 97, number 65. Makes the makes the decision during two days, he can't do it. He, he just physically can't play. He's physically too jacked up. And so they, at the time, our manager was a guy named Kevin Bull, and Kevin Bull was like the Paul Johnson of managers. We had the shittiest equipment. We had the worst customer service you could ever imagine. I mean, the guy, 
The guy just did not give two craps about you, your problems, nothing. And he just walks out one day and goes, you're number 65 now. You're in locker 65. Get your crap. Go to 65. I mean, I'm a plebe. It's, I think it was still during two-a-days. Maybe, maybe right after two-a-days. I mean, it was close. And, and I'm surrounded, you know, there's like two or three to us to a locker, you know, in the old locker room. And uh, everybody's looking at me. I, I'm like, hey, guys, I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, so I just grab all my crap. I walk over to 65. Hunter's still getting his stuff out of his locker. And he's a mammoth of a human being. And I'm, you know, not even 200 pounds at this point because I've lost so much weight. And uh, he and I said, "Hey, man, I, you know, I, I'm I'm so sorry. They just told me to move over." He's like, "No, no, no, no. Welcome. Wear with pride. Do me proud." Nice. Yeah, and uh, that was my introduction to the trailer park. So that's what we called. That's what we called our area, and. I was very fortunate. I got to spend four years in the trailer park with class of 96 to class of 03. You know, eventually. Uh, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, yeah, go awesome. ahead. Ask your question. So, I got to ask more about the consulting gig because I, I, I'd done a couple consulting interviews. It was originally something that I thought I'd probably be pretty good at. Um, with the background experience, whatever. Um, but when I go to the interviews, I, I'm like, no. Um, one, typically in any big consulting thing, um, you have to start out at a X level um, and kind of like go through some cycles, prove your worth, up or out. Um, and I don't think I'm, I don't want to do that. I'd rather get back into the operation and just run it. Okay. Um, but there was this one outlier, and this one outlier required a uh, secret security clearance. It's like, oh, I got one of those. Nope, it expired. So I, I had the interview lined up, and then the day of, it got canceled because the secret clearance expired. Wasn't. Yeah, exactly. So. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, like if it was that important, it probably could have been, it, it probably could have happened, right? Like, so. The, so, so let me tell you a couple of things about consulting because I've heard I've heard a few people bash and 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 I get it. Yeah, uh, I was one of them at one point. I know you're the biggest basher. <laughs> uh, so, because I've been there. He, so, so here's the thing. Here's the thing about consulting, and, my, and full transparency. Uh, you know, I get it. I totally get it. So, number one, the first thing to remember is consultants are hired to do a specific thing, and the more expensive that particular consultant or consultancy is, the more uh, conscious the company that hires them are of keeping them to their scope. So, so if they get hired to answer the question, how do we cut costs? How do we 
become more efficient? How do we do specific things? Then they're going to go find the, the potential answers to those things, and that's it. If they if their scope is how do we and what are the risks in doing so, then they'll provide that answer. But if the scope doesn't include and what are the risks in doing so, you don't want to pay McKenzie another eight hundred fifty or thousand dollars an hour to provide you an answer to a question you didn't ask. Yeah. So that's the danger in hiring the big ones, right? Yeah. Um, you, you're in, you, your experience is in a niche place, and I guarantee you there are consulting firms you've never heard of that specialize in helping mid- and small-sized plants run more efficiently based on the lessons learned by people that have experience working for fortune 50 fortune 500 companies in similar situations yes. uh, that's where you would be a rock star absolutely be a rock star you just got to go find those companies and then yeah. find the network into those companies. I feel like but, uh, my experience inside of uh, like inner city America is pretty good from a uh, frontline standpoint, turnover, recruiting, and all that kind of stuff. I've been through the whole gamut of that. Mm -hmm. And um, so when a McKinsey comes in or when a big consultant company comes in and says, hey, we're going to cut all these heck out. In my mind, I'm thinking, no, I need my, I need the supervision. <laughs> yeah. Because when the cats are, you know, you know dogs and the cats will play, um, like that is, uh, I, th I think, a very important factor based off of environment. And uh, something I've been, you know, working through, struggling with um, throughout well, the whole process. Well, the, the the first thing that McKinsey or BCG or Bain, any of those big guys would do, they wouldn't BCG, actually do. BCG was the one that reached out to me with that whole security clearance issue. That there I you go. I was like super so, excited about it. Oh, yeah. So I, I've, I've gone so through far. all this stuff. So but the first thing they would do, if you put a cloak and dagger over the whole thing, and they didn't know what organization they were looking at, they'd tell you to cut first sergeants and gunnery sergeants and staff sergeants. I mean, you know, they, yeah. they, 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 they get For everything sure. to the, they get everything to their numbers, right? To whatever they think the numbers should be. Um, but they would never go tell the Navy or the Marine Corps to do that, to actually do that. Cause that would be, that would, that would yeah. severely limit the the number of future opportunities they ever got to work with those you know those departments. Yeah, it's, it's about it's too, cost. It's not about growth. Right. It's too expensive to do. Well, you know, I ha I was having a conversation today with one of my colleagues, and I said, you know, the driver shortage is real. Which you know you I understand that you you understand that right, yeah. and in the school bus industry or the fleet industry, it's, it's, it's real. It is an absolute thing. 
but there's both a supply and a demand side to the driver shortage. And on the supply side, it's not just about recruiting. You don't have to recruit as much if you don't lose as much. So you start with retention. Yep. And to your point, you start, start taking away access to the top and lines of communication of people that care about the front line and empathize with their situation and understand their situation, people bail faster. Shamwa. There's all sorts of things that consultants can do to help you try to become better on the demand side in terms of efficiency. But on the supply side, it starts with retention. And that's all about taking care of your people. Yeah. You got to take care of your people. No doubt. All right. So, so what comes next after the whole consultancy thing? I think that's where we left off. Well, yeah. So there's, you know, I spent my time at the Academy at the Academy. I got to be an associate director of Stockdale center and work for Colonel Athens. I got to teach plebe leadership and teach a bunch of your classmates. Uh, I got to work with the football team in the weight room, which is where I got to know some of you guys. Uh, I got to know the JV guys a lot better than the other guys because you guys would lift during lunch. That was when I was over there was during lunch. I had to coach rugby, which was absolutely amazing. And I got to meet guys like Craig Allman and Justin North and countless others. Elliot Hoses. Uh, Elliot Josie's. And his and his he partner Kenzie right now, I think. Well and his partner in crime, Kyle Millard. Did oh. you know? Kyle Miller, I remembered him being a baller. Shout oh out. yeah. Shocker. Yes. Hey, it's on my LinkedIn. It's a shocker. So he, yeah, so he's a, he's a he's a P three pilot and uh it took me two two years to get Kyle to stop trying to be um a bullpen pitcher and learn how to hit people for a living. And he became just an awesome, awesome rugby player. Played for, played a lot of rugby after he actually left the academy. He was the biggest, he was the tallest dude on the team and the fastest. I think he was taller, and, he definitely taller than me. Oh, he's like 6'5", 6'6". And on a good day, he could beat Josie's in a 40 or a 50. And it ripped Josie's apart. Uh, Anthony Varvudis spent some time as a long snapper on the football team before he so he walked on, made the team, and then eventually was like, I I think I was having more fun playing rugby, and he came back. Um, but I mean, just so many dudes that I got to got to mentor and coach, and that was the best part about being back there was. You know, I paced the PRT for you guys. I don't know if you remember, if you remember that, but um, yeah, you're probably ahead of me. So, oh no, I, I finished. Remember. I finished at ten twenty nine every single time I ran it, and I'd get the I'd get the group together and I'd tell them all because I'd wait for the coaches to leave. Because remember, if you remember, we would start by the turf field entrance. Yep. Right where Rip Miller's, and then uh, you'd run you know, about that first half of a lap and that's where you'd finish. And the coaches were all there. They're all watching their clocks and they're all yelling at yelling you, at you. Yeah. and me like, and me that we're not running fast enough. 
And uh, after about three times, the coaches finally settled down because they realized that I'd never, I never failed the PRT, you know, pacing you guys. So if everybody stayed with me, they were going to be fine. But what they don't understand is that if you blow it early, you can't recover while you're running. It's, it's gone. If you're going to sprint, you start sprinting at the sailing center and you finish. But you don't start sprinting or running anywhere near the pace that you need to be running in that first lap. It's because a different you, beast because, like, we, we it's not what you're trained to do. Trained to be a sprinter. And then all of a sudden you have to pass this endurance test. You know who had the most trouble passing that thing? Who? Kaipo. Oh, trying to get him on here, too. Kaipo, his back would just tighten up. Kaipo's back would tighten up. I'm trying to remember the fullback's name that was smart as hell. You haven't had him yet on here either, but you've talked about him a couple times. Uh, he really Sorry. struggled. No, 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 no. He was a second or third string guy. Okay. Really smart. Hatcher. Hatcher. Yes. Like, nicest guy on the planet, kid. Never said a bad thing about anybody. Yeah, awesome dude. Right? I mean, just also he's doing great stuff now too. I see him on LinkedIn every once in a while. But man, he struggled with that thing. Just struggled. Yep. It, the big guys didn't struggle because they were back in the they were back where I was when I was playing on the bike, puking in a trash can. You know? <laughs> it was all the guys that actually had to run the damn mile and a half at ten thirty. The guys and I was like, dude, just stay right here. Just stay right here. If you stay with me, we'll be fine. And I would run that PRT at two a days. I'd run it three, four, five days in a row until the last one of you passed it. Because they make you take it every day until you passed it. Because you weren't allowed to practice or whatever until you passed it. And yeah. it, oh, it was a mess. PRT was always a mess for me. Um, it was one of those things I dreaded and just pushed through barely made it and then it's kind of like the grades back then but yeah but i yeah i love doing that for you guys because i knew how much it sucked i just i knew as a midshipman i ran it twice i ran at the end of poop summer and i ran it to graduate in february and i ran at 1028 both times nice uh, but anyway so i got to coach i got to I got my master's, I got an MBA uh, with a finance and accounting, and uh, I dated my my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, long distance between Stockholm, Sweden, and Annapolis. Um, and so I had no time to do anything else. I, I helped run the Stockdale Center, I taught, I coached. I studied, and then when I found a free moment, I'd talk to her on Facebook or on the phone. And then every free piece of time I had, I'd fly to Stockholm or she'd fly to Annapolis. And it was it was just awesome. And then um, <clears throat> I th at that point, I thought I would probably stay in the Navy forever essentially i mean I, I i was loving it 
and then things started to change like the uh political correctness of the navy became the priority of the navy and i started having to answer questions for guys that i didn't know how to answer in class and uh that's when i realized like look if i'm gonna i'm absolutely loving getting my mba i'm loving reading the wall street journal every day um i hate natops which is the basically the aviator's bible um i love the tactics side but i hated i hated the airplane side absolutely despised it and uh I was like, look, if, if you're going to stay in and be competitive and do what you want to eventually go do, which is be a skipper of a squadron, then you you need to either leave this tour a year early or go go immediately from it and go to Afghanistan or Iraq as an IA. That was back when the individual augmentee thing was big yeah, in the Navy. That. I was like, you're going to have to go do that uh, to keep your paperwork in line. All your paperwork up till now is good, but this is going to hurt being in this shore duty. So you're, yeah, I'm going to have to go do that, and then I'm going to have to get lucky as a department head uh, in terms of who my skipper is. Because if I don't see eye to eye, I'll get ranked last. I mean, it was a first to last thing, right? I get ranked first to last. And uh, meanwhile, I've just ripped this girl out of her country. Uh, and while she was supportive, and no matter what I would decide to go do, I just decided it's time to punch. And uh, that was the hardest decision I've ever had to make. I spent two years where every waking moment of the day that I was not actively thinking about something else, I could not think about anything else other than should I stay in or get out. That's all I thought about constantly. And when I finally made the decision... I decided, okay, I'm going to get out. Boom. Done. Now what am I going to go do? And I narrowed it down to joining my dad's firm, uh, going and taking a shot at the big three, BCG, Bain, McKenzie, or uh, starting my own thing with these two classmates of mine from the academy. And that's ultimately the way the things went. Yeah. Did that for about uh, five years. And uh, during that time, we invested in my dad's firm and then ultimately ended up taking over my dad's firm, but under under a different set of circumstances. So, and that's where I am today. Awesome. Well, uh, you talked about that, that thought process of like, should I get out and how you were thinking about it? Like, once you made that leap, once you made that jump, um, what kind of things did you, were, were you thankful for or learned about? Um, it's a great question, Tony. Um, I think the first thing I was thankful for was the support. Uh, everybody for my past and I, cause I was not excited. <laughs> I was dreading going and telling, uh, my former mentors and leaders that, 
hey, I, I've decided I'm going to punch. Um, I was really dreading that. And to a, to a person, they all were very, very supportive of the decision. Um, the only thing that they that they asked was that I strongly consider staying in the reserves, which I was very against in the beginning. And of course, I ended up staying in the reserves for 10 years and retiring from the reserves. But I was very against it in the beginning because I didn't think I could do anything half-ass. I was worried that, uh, you know, it was all or nothing sort of a thing. And I'm so glad that they made me take a second, third, and fourth look at that. So that that that's probably the first thing I was thankful for. Um, the second thing was just the patience of my partners, my original partners, and me getting, because I started working for them while I was still active duty. Um, and then through the transition and just helping me learn what it was, what it meant to be, to not be in the Navy, even though we were still working primarily for the Navy. Um, that was, that was a huge help. Um, and I think the biggest thing that I learned, you know, over the last 13 years is, uh, I was very blessed throughout my naval career with the best leaders I could have ever asked for. And while I've had good leaders and peers in this world as well, it's not the same. It's just different. And unless you've lived in that world, you don't you don't get it or understand it. You can't possibly comprehend it. Um and so it's no fault on anyone, you know, that I've worked with or for since. But what we've experienced is different. And uh, it's special. And so if you, if you, if your expectation is that high, you're going to constantly be uh, at least a little disappointed. So you have to learn to adjust that expectation. Um, gotcha. That's for sure. Good stuff. Um, so looking back on your career, was there a specific grow up? moment for you like yeah all right you already got something in the works uh, so when when uh when i was an aide uh a buddy of mine and i went out one night and we we had a whole plan right we we are orm'd it so to speak right but the risk little OR, operational risk management matrix to to work and uh you know we went downtown norfolk long story short <laughs> uh we end up breaking up a fight we had nothing to do with in a bar but in the process of breaking up this fight everyone gets booted out of this bar which is fine and uh so we get in a you know, we get in a cab to go home and somebody else opens the door. Like, we're literally about to pull away. Somebody else opens the door, starts screaming that we've stolen their cab. And we're just in anti-confrontation mode at this point, right? Good for you. And so we're like, hey, man, no problem. So we get out and the cop turns around and it's like, 
I thought we told everybody to get out of here. And we're just like, look, man, we're just, we're, we're doing everything we can to get out of here. And we explain the situation. Long story short, we both realized like, hey, we're, we, we got a great thing going here with this whole Navy thing. We're both in, in a very good spot with where we are in our careers. And we just can't be putting ourselves in, the posi- in these positions anymore like idiots like it's it's not worth it it's just absolutely not worth it and so even a best laid plan can go can go to go to crap in a heartbeat and you're putting a lot of people and at the time i'm he's single i'm single it's not like i i hadn't even i hadn't even met my wife yet you know it's not we weren't even dating or anything at the time but i'm putting my bosses reputation on the line he's putting his boss's reputation on the line, like all that kind of stuff you got to figure these things out a lot a lot further in advance and you got to make smarter decisions even though they're not fun decisions you just got to make smarter decisions sooner rather than later yeah that 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 was that was definitely a uh a grow-up moment for good sure good stuff how do you uh how do you remain self-aware how do you remind yourself to stay on the right path? Uh, my wife does a really good job of that. <laughs> it's funny. The, the last podcast I had was with my senior enlisted advisor for my company. He said the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, really yeah. Yeah. She, she does a phenomenal job of that. I'm also phenomenally fortunate to, uh, to have two guys that work with me that I went to high school with. Um, and they, I mean, they know they, they, they cut through all of it. So they can cut like butter. Yeah. No, they have absolutely no problem putting me in my place. Uh, and then of course my original mentor is my father who started our business and he's still, he's still on the payroll. And, uh, he's, he's, he's the ultimate check and balance, right? I mean, if I've got, if I've really got a question or if I'm struggling with something or whatever, you know, I can call sir and sir sets everything straight pretty quick. That doesn't take long. Good stuff. If you could go back and tell your younger self to do something different. What would you say? So unlike uh, a lot of your guests, I, 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 I could build a list out of this stuff. Um, I assumed until I was well into my 20s, probably at some point after graduation, that I just didn't have a cardiovascular system in my body and that, you know, I couldn't, there there was nothing in me that could ever actually be in cardiovascular shape, physical condition. And so that was my excuse for not being able to make the basketball team in high school, you know, all sorts of stuff. And really it was just back to your price of admission, right? I, I didn't pay the price. I didn't, I didn't work and earn that, 
early enough. You know, listening to Joe Cardona's piece, as I'm sure you can imagine, I was fairly intrigued because sure. there aren't a whole lot of us out there, right? Yeah. And uh, I w- there's about two, two or three things that Joe and I have in common, right? Besides being long snappers, one is uh, he was he was a self-admitted mediocre football player outside of being a long snapper. Got it. Check. Um, and the other is we've both been coached by Belichick. So Steve Belichick was still alive and well and kicking in Annapolis when I was coming through. And Coach Weatherby used to drive me, and I think it was Clint Brown, 2001 guy. I think he would drive me and Clint out into town because the NCAA rules, you weren't, you were only allowed to have a certain number of coaches on campus, but there wasn't a rule about being coached off campus. So he would drive us into town to Germantown elementary school and drop us off in a, a elementary school. We go in the grass in the field behind the school and Steve Belichick would show up and coach us. The only yes. long snapping coach I've ever right had in my life. Well, Steve, see, Steve's not Steve's not with us anymore. That was oh, this yes. is I'm talking about Bill Belichick's dad. Okay. Um, and he actually ended up helping Dave Vizier prepare for the NFL. Uh, but that guy, just as I'm sure you can imagine, no nonsense, straight to yeah, business. Maybe. All the time. Look at Bill. And right? exactly. And just a I mean wealth of knowledge and you know, he got into like what our fingertips needed to be doing. You know, from our hips to our chest to our our glutes and quads and how it all worked together as a system and how where we put our hands on the ball or the the tilt of the ball in our hands and how that could change the the destination of the ball and the spin rate on the ball and a ridiculous amount of stuff. Uh, and I was so fortunate to be able to experience that. And, you know, the, it got me to the point where on you know extra points and field goals, my goal was that Trey didn't have to turn the ball. He'd catch the ball, the laces would be up, so that when he put the ball down, the laces would be out. And I, I'd i say our senior year, he probably had to spend less than a handful of balls. Uh, nice. But that was, that, and that had nothing to do with me. That was all Steve Belichick. Awesome. Uh, I, it's, a, it's like a recipe, you know? Oh, you got to just go execute. Yeah, if, if you could pull up. <laughs> A string with Bill. I'd, <laughs> ooh, ooh, well, that'd be Joe, awesome. Joe's going to pull a string with Bill long before I'm going to pull a string with Bill. You know, <laughs> you get you get Coach Kenny. You know, you get Coach Nehemiah on here. Uh, you know, he can pull a string possibly with with Bill. I know. I think he and Bill got pretty close. But yeah. uh, you know, uh, I, I've never I've never met Coach Bill. I've never met Bill Belichick. I met Coach Belichick, and that's Steve Belichick. Gotcha. And I, I think that's how, I think that that's how his son would put it. 
Yeah, I'll uh, I'll send uh, Coach Kenny a text after. The, the so so that's back. what I would tell the I would, that's why I tell the physical part of me, um, the intellectual part, um, you know, and I, and and I think this I don't think this ever stops being true. Just listen, listen, and yeah, you got to follow your heart, but. Your mind has to be a check and balance on your heart, uh, because when the people you love and trust and respect are telling you something, they're not telling you that to make you mad. You're, they're they're telling you that for a really good reason. So listen with an open mind and. Yeah, you still have to create your own path, and you still have to go out and do that. But I know a few people have said it before. You can learn a lot of your things the hard way. <laughs> yep. If you if you just listen a little harder. Yeah, no doubt. Um, what's your biggest struggle today? So I, I this one I, I had to think about for a long time. And uh, I think for, for me, it's two things. One, the balance between never being satisfied, which was the first lesson I got from my high school football coach. Because once, you, once you're satisfied, you stop improving. So you yep. can't ever be satisfied. Uh, and being appreciative of where you are. That's a hard... It's a hard thing to balance. Uh, yep. I, I struggle with that most days, I would say, if not every day. Um, and then, you know, raising my kids. Uh, so my son is 11. My daughter's 12. She'll turn 13 uh, actually in two months. Just just under two months and uh izzy and lucas and you know there's a there's a great saying it's a phenomenal saying i think uh, uh, it had to be a midshipman that invented the saying back in back in the day but the saying is if the minimum wasn't enough it wouldn't be the minimum and there's a really there are two extreme ways to look at that quote. One is, yeah, well, just do the minimum and, you know, eke your way through. The other way to look at it is, what do you set the minimum as? And I would argue men like Paul Johnson and Phil Emery, who you've heard to refer to as Satan on this podcast, um, they would agree with if the minimum wasn't enough, it wouldn't be the minimum. They would agree with that. Just make sure you're properly setting the minimum. Paul Johnson's minimum is well beyond most people's maximum. Well, well beyond. But he still had a minimum. We all still have one. Running a 10, 30 mile and a half isn't easy. I don't care who you are. 
That's not a simple thing to do, but somebody decided that was the minimum. Uh, the Marine Corps decided that the the minimum to max out pull-ups is 20. You got to do 20. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, how many times you get 20? I, I pretty. I, there might have been two times in my life I could have come close to getting to 20. Maybe. Good yeah. Lord. I'm getting certainly, close. Right it's now, certainly. But yeah. I've never done it in the past. <laughs> oh no, I could have never done it when I was on active duty. No way. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's where I struggle is setting in a, a bar and an expectation for them, which is where my wife tries to keep me in check. You know, my dad again. Yeah, you know, he's very, very, very experienced and. Uh, eloquent on some of these things and he said he'll just tell me son look you're trying to prepare them for independence and she's trying to take care of them you're on two completely opposite missions and they're both equally important true good luck <laughs> yeah. he's got yeah. he's got no there, there is no advice on how to balance it yeah, yeah the advice it's a dichotomy the, it's a dichotomy it's it's a total dichotomy and i think you know i think a lot of our a lot of our brothers you know missed they missed that dichotomy yeah you know they, they got raised by single moms or single parent households mainly single moms and in those situations eventually there's a switch yeah it's never right? 50 50. You know where where those things, where those things change. The, well, and those moms go. You know what? I don't have time to take care of them anymore. I just got to prep them to be a man. And those guys, you know, the there's there's a beauty and a curse to that. And uh, the beauty of it is, they get hard fast. Uh, it just takes them a lot longer to find some of the soft sides sometimes, but they they get hard fast. No doubt. All right. Uh, last question. Uh oh. Here it comes. Last sip. <laughs> What's your price of admission? So. Because I've listened to every single one of these things, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And uh, also, I do need to give a couple shout-outs real quick before I start to answer this. Do it. I got to thank Ben Fay and John Fay and Tim Shubsda um, for theirs. Because in in both of those, and you obviously, but in both of those, they talked about being concerned about society becoming too performance-based. And uh, I had to reflect on that big time. And I was I was definitely doing that both with my wife and my kids. And instead of valuing them for the people that they are, first and foremost, 
I was subconsciously viewing them through a performance lens and it was completely and totally unfair and uncalled for. And so it re the listening to those two podcasts, which were amongst the first two, if not the first, the first two that I listened to, because I didn't listen to them in order at first. I just listened to the ones of the people that I knew. Yeah. Um, totally changed our dynamic here at home. So thank awesome. you for that. Yeah, um, now, the price of admission. So the price is a cost. By definition, that's a cost. And admission means to go from where you are to somewhere that you want to go. Sometimes that's free. I can walk out beside my house and walk into the park, right? I mean, there's no other than walking. There, There is no other cost. Now, that's still a cost. I got to exert some effort. Um, but admission doesn't require more than that. Admission to something else might require more. So I think the price of admission in this case has gone a little bit undefined in terms of admission to what. If you want to be, the price of admission to the Brotherhood has, has actually been defined by Frank in terms of the brotherhood itself and it's look if you are a member of the team in any way shape or form then you're welcome to join the brotherhood <laughs> but i don't think that's what we're talking about on this podcast um yep. and this is where i started to this is where i really started to struggle because you've also had guys on here that talk about the price of mission that either weren't in the brotherhood at all um or didn't graduate for whatever the reason might have been. Yeah. Um, so the more I thought about it, uh, the more I got to the point where I think it's a cycle. The price of admission is a cycle, and that cycle never ends. It's just, it just repeats. And I think in general, the flow of the cycle follows the steps of earn, follow, lead, serve. And when sure you when you accomplish a goal, you start over. And you might be in a different part of the cycle in various parts of your life. And, and theoretically, you should be at different points in the cycle in various parts of your life at all times. And a lot of people fall out during the earn phase. Or they'll fall out during the follow Most phase. Most important, I think. Or they'll fall phase. out during the lead phase. But but those of us that are lucky enough to get to the serve phase, you realize that serving is harder than all the other three combined. Because when you serve, you earn, you lead, and you follow every day. And that's when you realize that rank is of little importance that that status is of little importance and that you can be led by your child just as easily as you can be led by your father you can be led by 
a bus driver just as easily as you can be led by the CEO. Um, but then you start you start to figure out and you continue to polish what it means to know your role in a moment and that is when you're able to finally start to serve because you're not serving people you're serving a mission and in order to fulfill the mission your role is going to change if not by the day but possibly by the minute or by the week uh the Marines get to experience that a lot better. Infantry Marines, on-ground combatant Marines get to experience that with soft guys a lot better than necessarily aviators do. But, you know, the whole point, you know, there, there's a quote, of course, you know, lead follower, get out of the way. I don't know if it's get out of the way, but find your role. Find your role. Find it. And don't be so arrogant to get in the way of that role. No one is above any job. Ever. Um, one of the great people that I met when I was in Admiral's Ape was the, uh, was the commanding officer of Eisenhower. And he actually lives here with me on Daniel Island now here in South Carolina. And he became an admiral, eventually a two-star admiral. Traps Coyd went to the Naval Academy. He's a an avid triathlete. The man is in his mid-60s and has like 1.5% body fat. I bet he picked up more trash on board Eisenhower than the rest of that crew combined. Shamwell. It was his ship. We'd be walking through the hallway. Me, him, and the Admiral. And he would stop the conversation six times to pick up a piece of paper, a gum wrapper, you know, whatever. Stop. Unscuff something on the floor. You couldn't stop him from cleaning that ship. He was cleaning the ship 100% of the time. He couldn't help himself because he had a pride, pride ownership, total ownership. You talk about Jocko all the time, right? Total ownership. Purely a servant leader. Just a phenomenal example, especially for me at a very young age where I had seen the Navy through a straw, the P3 straw, you know, for the last three years. And then you know, blew up my perspective of it. But I just think, I think it's like a, a cycle and you're right, especially at the state that we were in when we came to the Academy, whether you came from NAPS or not, whatever, we were in that earn, earn and follow piece. Right. And you had done something to earn the, the, the opportunity to come there. Right. So, so you had started the earning process. Uh, yeah, I've heard 
the different size of fish and the different size of pond analogies on many of these uh, podcasts, a lot of big fish and small ponds. I was like a, a goldfish in the ocean in my high school, you know. Uh, I was surrounded by rock stars in their own sports in different ways. I mean, I think I... I think I graduated at the bottom of the top third, you know, kind of like you and your, uh, and your, uh, TBS class, you know, and it probably about the same size. I mean, it was like 150 dudes, you know, in my graduating class. And I got, you know, I was ranked like 49th or whatever the hell it was. I mean, I wasn't setting off alarm bells on anything. I was just somewhere average Joe guy that, couldn't start on the football team or any other team for that matter and uh but i knew at a long snap i think i can help us on this so i was just a guy that figured out a niche that allowed me to be a part of a team that allowed me to contribute to a team that was bound and determined to do something as a sum of its parts that was better than those individually and what that allowed me to figure out is what I'm passionate about today, uh, which is I love building teams. I absolutely, positively, more than anything else, I love building teams and then helping them figure out how to win. Because Coach Weatherby had a lot of... I mean, that guy had more one-liners than you could ever imagine. God bless. Johnson? Oh, well, no. His were... Different types, I guess. Different, very, very different types. Okay. Very different types. But one of them was, now, man, how do you spell fun? W-I-N. And we all knew. Because, and he's right, when you're addicted to winning, when you're addicted to success, when you're addicted to to that, winning feels great, but losing feels 10 times worse as winning does feel great. Losing's the worst. I mean, and and if you are, if you're cut from that cloth and you're addicted to that and you are and you are willing to do anything for the brother next to you to make sure that you don't feel that and he doesn't have to experience that, you can do a lot of good. You can do a lot of good things, and you're willing to sacrifice a whole hell of a lot for that. The fourth quarters that we went through were brutal. And I think you can ask Justin North about the fourth quarters that he went through as a rugby player because I ran them all. <laughs> and uh, they were not fun for those guys either. Uh, you guys ran two 300s for your test right when you came back from from summer break for your conditioning piece. Uh, I made the rugby, rugby guys run three because they had to be able to play for 40 minutes. And then they got a five-minute halftime. Then they played another 40 minutes. So in my 30-year-old knowledge, I was like, well, two's not enough. I slowed the times down, you know, a few seconds. But they had to run three. 
And uh, that was those guys' price of admission, right? And I think I wrote almost 20 letters of recommendation for guys to go to the SEALs while I was coaching that rugby team. Nice. Um, and, you know, I think, was Blake Taylor your class? Was he class of 10? I think he was. Blake Taylor. Doesn't uh, ring a bell. Kevin, Kevin Dewey. Kevin Dewey ring a bell? See, I think Kevin Dewey was 09. Nope. Kevin Dewey was a 147-pound all-American rugby player. No pads. 147 pounds. One of the best 15 players in the country. He went EOD. Blake Taylor went SEALs. And he, yeah, he was 10. He was class of 10. He's a manimal. His like favorite pastime was alligator gar fishing in Texas. Oh, I remember. Yeah. You, you, and, you and Blake Taylor are like brothers from another mother. You just haven't met each other yet. I'll have to figure out how to get that accomplished. But, uh, sorry. But, yeah, uh, the earning part's huge. You can't start the cycle without earning. Yep. Most of a, lot of, a lot of people try. You know, uh, trust funds, all sorts of other things. They get handed something, and then they fail with it. It doesn't mean that you can't marry or be born into success. You can, but you still got to earn it to keep it. You got to earn it. Yep. And that's the first part in that cycle. Earn, follow, lead, serve. And once you get to serve, you'll never want to do anything else. Nice. Well, uh, tell Emma, thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Tonight. And uh, tell Amanda talk. the same. Will do. Um, really good. And uh, appreciate your time. Thanks, Tony. All right. And thanks for doing this. Yeah. Lots of fun. Take care. Have a good one.